Hi, I'm Emma. I'm Sean. Uh, welcome back to the Blue Side Podcast, the podcast for the Science Communication Society at the University of Cambridge. And welcome back, Sean. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so on the show today, I'm talking to Alice Pullen about predation strategies and pressures in a wide variety of sea creatures. Cool, yeah, and I'll be chatting with um, Delphine Larieux, who is a group leader at the CIMR in Cambridge. Uh, we talked about her work on progeria, which is a form of accelerated aging, and also what that tells us about uh, why we age. This is Sean, recording for the Blue Side podcast. I'm here with Alice in the Earth Science Department today. Alice, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I'm Alice, and uh, I'm Alice Pullen, and I'm a PhD student at the British Antarctic Survey, and I also have connections with the University of Cambridge and the University of Southampton. Great. Yeah. Um, and would you like to tell us a little bit about your work? Cool. So I'm a marine biologist, and what I'm interested in is quantifying predation pressure, um, which is basically a way of measuring the impact that predators have on their ecosystem. And we're doing this in various glamorous ways, um, which involve uh, sort of uh, cl collecting feces, collecting oxygen consumption. Um, yeah, and the key thing about this method is that it's new and it's quantifiable, so we can compare it. We can compare all predators against one another in theory. Yeah. Okay, that's very interesting. Um, oh, I don't know. Do you want to tell us how you got started in this field? Um, How'd you get into it? Well, actually, I kind of got into it because of my master's. Um, so I did a master's project in paleontology here in Cambridge, and we were interested in latitudinal trends in predation pressure. But because we were measuring it from a paleontological perspective, we're looking at, well, things which have been dead for 40 million years. Uh, so we're looking at shells and bones. And the key thing about looking at shells and bones and using them to measure predation is that A, you're only getting a really small subset of the prey, so you're not getting anything which is only soft-bodied. So, for example, I work on anemones now, and they do not really show up in the fossil record. And you're also only seeing the predators that um, make marks on shell or bone. So it so happened that a PhD came up the next year, which was looking at latitudinal trends in soft-bodied predators, like modern predators. Um, so that's kind of how I got started. Uh, yeah. But it's the biggest kind of learning curve for me has definitely been stepping from paleontology to marine biology. It's very, very different. Dead things to living things. Yeah, I mean, if something's already been dead for 40 million years, you can leave it in a drawer for two years and come back and it's fine. Uh, with living things, you have to change their water every three days and leaving them in a drawer for a year is not really an option. <laughs> yeah. So you spend a lot of time in the lab? Uh, yeah, when I'm on field work, uh, I do quite long lab days, long intense lab days. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I'm uh, a lot of my work involves sourcing data from literature sources. Okay. Um, so it's not all it's not all lab work. Mm -hmm. And then your field work as well, right? You've been. Yeah. Where have you been? Uh, so I've been to Plymouth. I went around this time last year, and I'm going back in a week um, to sort of not fix some of the data I took then, but um, improve on it, I suppose. Uh, and we are hoping to go to Rothera in Antarctica, or at least to source specimens from there, and also to go to Hong Kong, um, which is kind of what I mentioned earlier about being interested in latitudinal yeah. trends in predation pressure. Ideally, we want these three sites so that we can actually start making 
we can take our data and then we can make comparisons between these three sites. Yeah. Would be really cool. And so what's interesting about latitudinal trends in predation pressure? So it's kind of based on this really long-standing biological paradigm which first arose in the 60s. Um, R.T. Payne came up with it. And it's based on previous biological paradigms generally. There's a general idea that um, biological diversity also increases towards the tropics and that the intensity of biotic interactions increases that way too. So the next kind of logical step to that is to say, well, what if predation pressure increases towards the tropics as well? Um, so that's kind of where that idea comes from. Okay, I see. Right. Yeah. Um, and myself being an earth scientist, would you track that back through the fossil record then as well? Yeah, I'd be interested in doing that because um, actually, if my work goes off well, then we might be able to relate uh, either biomass or individual abundances of animals in the fossil record to their predation pressure. Mm. Um, yeah, we could possibly scale that. Um, that's kind of where the PhD comes from, is that the latitudinal idea, the idea of latitudinal trends, was kind of born in the fossil record. The downside of that is, as I mentioned, you can only see really less than half the picture when you look at the fossil record because the predatory attacks you see are only perpetrated by geophages. Now, geophages are predators which um, make marks on um, shells or bones. Um, I was giving a sort of mini lecture in Plymouth last year, actually, and I said that I meant to say that geophages crush the shells of their prey, and I accidentally said that geophages crush the skulls of their enemies. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, the downside of that is that when you're looking for predation in the fossil record, um, you really want predators where you can point a finger at them and go, this was definitely that predator. So for example, a distinctive predator would be a natissid, which is a type of gastropod, and they create these really distinctive round holes. And another distinctive predator would be crabs, which kind of... Um, perpetrate peeling predation and I know this isn't going to be good for a podcast because you guys can't really see what I'm doing <laughs> but what they do is they insert their claw into the aperture the opening of the shell and they just open their claw and do this successively to break off pieces of the shell until they can nip inside and get the gastropod out the, the snail out um so those are two types of animal so do snails and crabs really represent the whole of predation in the ocean and we're sort of saying reasonably speaking we might be able to tell something from this, and this is very informative, but what we're doing enables us to look at potentially all predators, not just these crushing predators, these geophages. Okay, um, I see. Yeah. But they wouldn't have a, a fossil record then, soft body? No, um, so I'd say one exception. I mentioned I was working with three groups. I'm kind of working with starfish, anemones, and worms. And uh, the starfish are probably the exception in that they do have a fossil record, but they tend to disarticulate. So yeah, they're not. They they, they, yeah, they break up. Sorry, um, <laughs> they break up, so they're not as visible in the fossil record as we would like. Um, the other thing is that when they feed, what anemones do is they sting their prey to death and then just swallow it whole. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's pleasant. Um, the worms uh, tend to eat soft-bodied prey, so that doesn't really show up. We can't really tell what they're doing there. And the starfish, um, in this case, the starfish I was studying in Plymouth, they evert their stomachs, which is effectively where they vomit their stomachs out onto their prey and then digest their prey outside of their body. Um, so we can't, as you imagine, we can't actually, this leaves no mark on, yeah, shells or bones, so we can't see this in the fossil record at all. 
Um, so that's why we're interested in it, because if the idea of these latitudinal trends has been born in the fossil record, then what if we are biased in our ideas towards these crushing predators? There's no reason that crushing predators should reflect all predators in terms of trends, because when we describe predation, what we're actually um, grouping these animals by is the fact that they kill and eat other animals. Mm. And there is actually no unifying mechanism for this and no reason that these trends should just be controlled by one thing. If it is, then that's kind of an interesting answer in itself. Um, yeah, because it means that it's probably not a mechanistic uh, reason for the trend. There's probably something else going on, um, something to do with like the nature of diversity and so on and abundances more than individual predator function. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. Thanks. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there any particularly memorable experiences from your PhD so far? Um, I would say worms. Uh, <laughs> worms are probably, as a group, the most memorable thing about my PhD. Um, so uh, in Plymouth, I worked on, as I mentioned, these large ragworms. Um, which are about the length of your forearm, say, and maybe the thickness of your thumb. And they have very big jaws, and they are very angry, and they like to bite you. And fishermen use them for bait, which is how we obtained them. Um, so what they do is they explode when they're stressed. And this is uh, quite a dramatic way of putting it. They reroute their reproductive pathway and rupture. And I had 80 of these guys in the lab, and I was very proud of the fact that only one of them exploded. Um, so I only lost one of them, which is good because it meant that my sample size was not reduced by this. Um, the other thing is working with these Antarctic worms, which are called Parbolasia corrugatus. They sort of live together in big piles, like piles of dirty socks, and they are really horrible. So they have skin which produces a mucus, which is the same pH as hydrochloric acid, and I can testify it does burn you when it gets on your skin. Um, they also will stab you with their proboscis when you bother them, which is kind of my job. Um, <laughs> and they, like the previous worms, even though they're totally unrelated to each other, also explode when they're stressed. So I did have the delightful experience of putting one of them um, in the oven, which is, again, part of my job. Trust me, it was, uh, it, it was dead. But <laughs> unfortunately, that sparked this procedure and I ended up covered in worm juice because wow. of this experience <laughs> and that was um the first day of a week of lab work and I reasoned to myself that nothing after that could go wrong and I was correct there was nothing worse that happened to me during that week <laughs> than being covered in really hot worm juice <laughs> yeah so I'd say that's probably the most memorable experience <laughs> wow yeah um okay well thanks Alice for telling us a bit about your work no problem uh, is there anything else you'd like to tell me? Something I should have asked about? Uh, no, I think we kind of did it. <laughs> cool. And you said what's, what's coming up next for you? You're going to Plymouth? Yeah, going to Plymouth. And if all goes well, we should be heading to Hong Kong hopefully later this year. And uh, depending on how the work at Rotherer um, in Antarctica is going, uh, we might get to go to Antarctica mm -hmm. in January, February of next year. Would um, you like to go? Yeah, I would. It would be good. <laughs> Um, although hopefully if I can't because there are limited places hopefully we'll be able to mail order the specimens effectively they'll bring them back to us and we can work with them um, actually in the labs in Bass um, yeah British Antarctic Survey in yeah in the British Antarctic Survey we have an aquarium which is uh, minus one degrees although the air temperature is minus three because the water temperature has to be minus one and mm. that's the kind of relationship there um, which is 
one of those things where as a scientist you go in and you know that it doesn't actually matter what you wear today because you're going to end up bundled up in a coat that's three times the size of you <laughs> you're just gonna look like uh, I don't know a giant jelly belly <laughs> for the whole day and you have to wear walking boots because you'll inevitably spill seawater all over yourself really? and yeah it's just uh, one of those days um but working for the whole day in minus one uh temperatures uh does make you kind of quite prepared for going somewhere like Plymouth say where the cold lab is 15 degrees and everyone warns you about oh it's so hard in the cold lab and I'm like yeah <laughs> but yeah good moral fortitude so I actually learned my energetics techniques in the bass aquarium um and after that that has prepared me for the very relatively pleasant conditions working in Plymouth yeah I say trial by fire but very cold fire. trial by ice <laughs> <laughs> cool all right thanks Alice thanks yeah for no problem lovely to speak to you Sean All right, yep, thanks again to Alice. Uh, now we're going to look at a research highlight, which I think Emma has read and prepared for us. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm very excited about this one. So this has to do with honeybees doing some maths. So before I start talking about bee solving equations, I'm just going to start with a little bit of sort of background information. Sure. Okay, so we've actually known for quite some time um, that many animals have some numerical understanding. Um, and it's, I mean, it's quite easy to see why that would have um, evolved. So a good, a good example of this, for example, is a fish, right? So small fish often travel around in groups as a way to protect against predators. And obviously for each individual fish, the risk of getting eaten is smaller if it is part of a larger group, okay? So you can easily see why it's quite useful for a fish to have some understanding of whether a group is small or large. Okay. Now, we know that um, honeybees have that understanding as well. And actually, um, it was shown quite recently that bees also have some understanding of the concept of zero. So that was, there was a study that was published in Science uh, sort of a few months ago, I think it was in June. Just briefly, the way it was done, because it's quite cool, um, they were basically showing bees uh, two pictures which consisted of a, a white background with a, cert, a certain number of black shapes on it. And then if the bees went towards the picture with fewer shapes, they would receive a treat. And if they went towards the picture with more shapes, they would get given something that tastes really bitter. And so the bees were able to learn to go towards the picture with a smaller number of shapes drawn on it. And then they could do so with uh, sort of over 80% accuracy mm. by the end of it, by the time they were trained. And so then scientists put an additional option, which was just a white background without anything drawn on it at all. And then the majority of bees in that case decided to go for that option, uh, even though they had not seen it before, right? Which suggests that they have oh, wow. some kind of understanding that no shape at all uh, somehow is less than, you know, one, two or three shapes. Yeah. Okay, so that's already pretty cool. Now, fast forward to this study that I wanted to talk about, um, which was published in Science Advances, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think it's in the February um, issue. We've established that honeybees have some numerical understanding and even understands uh, the concept of zero, which is not actually that common in the animal kingdom. But I think you can agree that 
sort of the next level of complexity would come from the ability to add or subtract uh, numbers. And that ability is very rare amongst animals. Okay, so, so far it has been seen in some monkeys and I think some birds, the kind of grey parrots, I think. Um, but that's pretty much it. Uh, so this study actually argues that you could add honeybees to that list, right? So how do researchers reach that conclusion? So bear with me, because they could be a bit complicated, but <laughs> I'll, we'll see if <laughs> I can explain this uh, in a way that is understandable. So they set up this uh, pretty neat system, which basically consists of a sort of Y-shaped uh, maze. So if you can picture it, at the entrance, you have the entrance of the maze, which is sort of at the base of the letter shape, yeah? And then you have two exits, which would be effectively at the top of the two branches of the letter. Okay? Yeah. Good. Okay, so at the entrance of the maze, the bees get shown a specific number of blue shapes. Okay, so for example, an image with three blue squares on it. And then at one exit of the maze, there is an image with one additional shape. So that would be four blue squares. And then at the other exit of the maze, you have an image with either one fewer shape or two additional shapes. So that would be... Either two yes. or five. Very good. Okay. You're doing very well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the bee flies into the maze, okay, and then it has to make a decision as to which direction uh, to take. So if the bee goes towards the image with one additional blue shape compared to the number that it is shown at the start, then it gets a nice sweet treat. Okay? And then if it goes to the image that has either one fewer shape or two more shapes than what it gets shown at the start, then it gets given quinine, which tastes really bitter. That's the same thing they used in this other experiment sure. I was talking about. Yeah. Okay, so that's the first exercise. And then the second exercise is pretty similar. But instead of blue shapes, they use yellow shapes. And in that situation, the bee receives a treat if it chooses the option with one fewer shape than one that's shown at the entrance. And the wrong option is either one extra shape or two fewer yellow shapes. So let's see if you get this. If you start with three yellow shapes, the correct answer is... Two. Yes. And the wrong answer is either... One. Yes. Four. Or four. Very good. Okay. <laughs> so the idea is basically you try and get bees to associate blue with addition of one shape and then yellow with subtraction of one. Yeah. Okay. That's basically the basis. And actually it works pretty well. Um, so after a period of training of some time, the bees were basically put to the test. And so they have four different tests that they are made to do. Um, and they went for the correct answer in about, I think, 64 to something like 72% of the time. So there's one caveat, which is that they did not test a huge number of bees. I think they only had 14 bees um, for the experiment. That being said, if it was just a random choice, uh, you would expect that number of correct decisions to be much, much closer to 50. So what I really like is that it, do it suggests not only that bees can you know, remember the number of shapes that they're shown at the entrance of the maze, but then they can also work out what sort of plus one shape or minus one shape should be, depending on the color, and then they can make a decision accordingly, which I think is very cool. Yep, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. So that's it. If you want to read the paper, it's in um, Science Advances. So I recommend it. It's quite fun. Awesome. Cool. Okay, should we crack on to next interview?
Yes, your interview. Yes, my interview. So, um, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, I talked to Delphine Larieux. He works on accelerated ageing, and I hope you enjoy the interview. I am joined today by uh, Delphine Larieux, who is a group leader at the Cambridge Institute for Medical Research. So first of all, thank you so much, Delphine, for uh, taking the time and no, coming on the show. Thanks to you for the, this opportunity to <laughs> talk about our, our research. <laughs> it's a pleasure. So <coughs> perhaps I'll just start off by giving a little bit of background for the listeners. Mm -hmm. um, so you did your PhD in Grenoble in France, yes. um, and then did a, a postdoc at the Gurdjian Institute, um, which is in Cambridge, yep. uh, with Steve Jackson, mm -hmm. who works on broadly speaking, uh, sort of genome stability and yes. how it is maintained, yeah. Exactly. Um, and so then you set up your own group in, I believe, 2017? Yes, so quite recent. a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> and your um, research is centred generally on how defects of the nuclear envelope in cells can cause uh, diseases. Yes. And in particular, you've been working on this very devastating disease, which is called uh, Hutchison-Guilford-Progeria syndrome. Yeah. If I'm pronouncing that correctly, yes, um, or progeria for short, um, which is a very it's a very rare form of premature aging, and normally leads to death in I believe early teens. So. Exactly. Yes. yes. So I thought perhaps before we delve into you know what the nuclear envelope is and how it plays a role in aging, and in progeria, perhaps we could just take a little bit of a step back, um, and start with just the basics of aging more generally, I guess. I think most people will have some understanding of what aging is, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you can kind of tell if someone is young or, yes, or elderly. <laughs> um, but I'm guessing a lot of people would actually find it quite difficult to really define what's, what we mean when we talk about aging. So I was wondering if you could first perhaps just um, describe to me how you would define aging in sort of biological terms. Yeah, sure. So, so I mean, uh, you know, as you know, aging is a very complex process, mm -hmm. uh, but I think it can be defined as a time-dependent functional decline mm -hmm. that's ba basically characterized by a progressive loss of physiological integrity and cellular integrity as well. And so altogether, um, aging leads to organ dysfunction mm -hmm. uh, and increased vulnerability to death. And mm -hmm. so, so as you know, aging is the major risk factor for many types of human diseases, such as cancer, but mm -hmm. also cardiovascular disorder and uh, neurodegeneration, such as Alzheimer's disease. So, so I think that's probably the way I would define yeah. aging. Uh -huh. And so, I mean, I mentioned uh, just before that progeria is a form of uh, premature aging. So what does that mean sort of biologically? How does the disease present? So basically, so I'll just explain you a little bit what, what is uh, Hutchinson-Guilford. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, HDPS, that stands for Hutchinson-Guilford progeria syndrome, uh, that, that's basically named after its uh, discoverers, mm -hmm. uh, is a very rare premature aging syndrome. Uh, so when I say very rare, it's believed to affect about 300 kids worldwide at any given time mm -hmm. point. Okay. So it's probably one of the rarest syndromes in, in the world. Uh, and so the, the cause of uh, Hutchinson-Guilford is a de, de novo point mutation mm -hmm. in a gene called Lamin-A. So what, uh, what 
means the novo, it means that it's basically not a mutation that's transmitted by the parents. Mm -hmm. So it's a mutation that occurs in the embryo after fertilization, and that's probably why it's such a rare syndrome. And so, um, as you mentioned before, the, the average lifespan for the kids uh, is around 14, 14, years, uh, 14 years old. And as of today, there is no cure available for this syndrome. Mm -hmm. So in terms of uh, presentation, medical presentation, the kids are usually born normal. And it's only around the age of one to two years old where they start displaying signs of premature aging. So I think probably one of the first uh, signs will be loss of hair. And then they will show this uh, prominent uh, scalp vein. Mm -hmm. They will display this very thin uh, characteristic nose. And then very quickly, they will basically display most of the signs that uh, occur during normal aging, but very rapidly. So they will uh, have loss of uh, fat, they will, have, they will stop growing, they will um, have this uh, joint stiffness. And, and the main um, symptom that, that's basically the cause of death is uh, cardiovascular pathology. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so, so I think that's, uh, that, that's the main uh, presentation. And in, interestingly, the, this syndrome basically affects mo most of the organs, mm -hmm. except the brain. Uh, so, so the brain is completely normal, and the kids have a completely normal uh, mental development. Uh, but, but everything else is, is aging really rapidly. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's quite awful, really. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, the syndromes which are also called sort of accelerated aging? Yes. Uh, right, like Werner's syndrome, which I, I mostly know of because that's also my surname. Okay. Um, so how, how does that differ from premature aging as is seen in... So, HDPS. to be honest, in the literature you can find people referring to HDPS as accelerating, yeah. accelerated aging instead of premature, so you can probably use both, but I would say that uh, Hutchinson Guilford is probably both uh, premature and accelerated mm -hmm. aging, because not only the aging starts very early on, but then the kids actually eight, uh, age about eight, eight times uh, faster than normal aging. So, so, so I, I would characterize yeah. it as both so premature and accelerated uh -huh. aging. Okay, so perhaps if we delve a, a little bit deeper into um, the disease, you, you've told us that um, HGPS is somehow caused by this mutation in um, lemon A. And so I was wondering if you could tell us what, how that translates at the cellular level, what yes. happens in these cells, which causes these you know, dramatic set of symptoms that you see in those uh, patients? Sure. So, so basically, this uh, gene, this lamina gene that's mutated in, in progeria patients, uh, in healthy individuals, codes for a protein called lamin. And these lamin proteins, uh, that, so they accumulate around the nucleus, uh, at the nuclear envelope, uh, as it's called. So that, that's a, a structure that's very important to maintain the scaffold of the nucleus and the shape of the nucleus. Mm -hmm. And also that's um, also involved in organizing the DNA inside the nucleus. Yeah. And so uh, because of that, the, the lamin proteins regulate very important cellular processes, such as um, not only this nu uh, nuclear scaffold, but also gene expression regulation, mm -hmm. DNA replication, and DNA repair, for example. And so in progeria, because of the, so there is a single point mutation in, in the lamin gene. And as a consequence of this mutation, 
uh, instead of the normal lamine protein, the, the cells express a protein called progerin that will also accumulate at the nuclear envelope, but that's not able to uh, play its normal role, its normal function right. in the cell. So it's basically, it's, it's a very toxic protein. Mm -hmm. um, and so basically, once this progerin accumulates at the nuclear envelope uh, in, in the cells, uh, that will disrupt the nuclear scaffolds dramatically. So this will lead to a very characteristic nuclear shape defect that we call uh, nuclear blebbing. And you can basically visualize this very easily by mi microscopy. And uh, this is believed to make the cells more fragile to, to stress. And so um, in, in addition to, to this, the accumulation of progerin will also modify globally the organization of the DNA mm -hmm. inside the nucleus. And that will lead to a global deregulation of gene expression and DNA replication. And that will uh, trigger the accumulation of DNA damage that's believed to contribute to aging. And so, so, so as a consequence of all of these um, processes, the cells will enter prematurely into senescence and the organs will age very mm -hmm. rapidly. Yeah. I always find it crazy when you have these diseases which are caused by, you know, such a small exactly. change somehow it kind yes. of affects the whole organism. Yes. So as part of your postdoc, right, you started looking for, I guess, compounds that could reverse this kind of nuclear dysmorphia, yes. I guess. Um, and you came across this small molecule, which we called remodeling. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us a little bit what first what remodeling is broadly and how how you identified it and how that came about? Yeah, sure. So, uh, so uh, as you mentioned, I, I was working as a postdoc in uh, Steve Jackson's lab, who is mainly interested in uh, uh, DNA damage repair and mainly cancer. So I was actually initially working on cancer, studying the role of these lamine proteins uh, in cancer cells because it actually turns out that the laminate gene is also mutated in cancers. Right. And so that will lead to uh, either overexpression or uh, depletion of, of the lamine uh, proteins in, uh, in cancer. So um, interestingly, these cancer cells with deregulated lamine uh, protein also display some similar cellular phenotypes to Hutchinson Guilford such as these uh, very strong nuclear um, abnormalities. Mm -hmm. So initially I took these uh, cancer cells and I um, set up a, a screen of molecules uh, with the, the goal to, to try to identify something that could at least improve the nuclear shape defects in these uh, cancer cells right. and basically hoping that this would maybe improve some other, other phenotypes. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I, I, so I put all these uh, compounds, all these drugs on the cells. I uh, stained the nucleus with uh, fluorescent stain. I went down to the microscope and I looked at how the compounds would affect the shape of the, of the nuclei. Mm -hmm. And um, very unexpectedly, I observed that one of the compounds uh, led to a complete rescue of the abnormal nuclear shape in these mm -hmm. cancer cells, right. which was very exciting. Uh, and so, yeah, because obviously I didn't expect to find anything with such a drastic effect. Yeah. I was hoping yeah, to course, find something yeah. that would have a mild effect at <laughs> least. Uh, and so, so my first thought was to just try this compound in cells from Hutchinson Guilford. Um, and so it turned out that the molecule was also able to improve the, the phenotypes of, these, um, mm -hmm. of these cells. And so then I just decided to drop cancer <laughs> and to, to, to focus on progeria just because I find it a very fascinating yeah. Uh, yeah, disease. And so um, 
basically that, that was kind of the first um, readout of the screen, but then obviously we had to also check that the compound was also able to improve some other cellular phenotypes. So we also looked at uh, DNA organization, DNA replication, repair, and, and all these kind of things. And actually the molecule was able to improve all of these uh, abnormal right. cellular mm -hmm. phenotypes and to um, delay the entry of the cells into, into senescence. Mm -hmm. So um, it's nice to have such a clear phenotype. Yes, yes. Yeah. So yeah, that was really a, <laughs> a really exciting uh, discovery. And then to, to come back to the compound itself, so at this stage, um, nothing was known about the compound and it was actually yeah. pretty unstable and uh, not very potent. So I um, set up a collab collaboration with a, a chemist, uh, Dr. Rafael uh, Rodriguez, who was working next door in um, Shankar Balasubramanian's lab. Mm -hmm. And so um, Raphael was able to modify the compound to make it more stable and more potent. And, and I actually named this molecule remodeling for its ability yeah. to remodel the nucleus yeah. and, and the DNA organization. Great. So, okay, so I'm trying to, you know, put myself in your, <laughs> in your <laughs> position and sort of like follow your train of thought. <coughs> so you find this compound, right, which seems to release some of this sort of nuclear dysmorphia that you observe in these progeria-like cells. Yes. So then I'm guessing the obvious thing would be to actually try and understand what the compound actually does, how, how, exactly. how it works. So, so you went on to try and identify the target, right? Yes. And you came across this protein, which is called NAT10. Mm -hmm. okay. Could you tell us a little bit what, um, well first, what NAT10 is, and then also how you believe it actually has such a drastic effect on nuclear shape of yeah. all? Yeah, sure. So, so basically, also just to tell you a bit about uh, how we actually identified uh, mm -hmm. NAT10. So, uh, as most drugs will work by binding to something in the cell, yeah. uh, what we did is we, we just decided to, to go fishing. Uh, so <laughs> together with uh, with my uh, chemist colleague, we, we attached uh, a chemical hook uh, to to remodeling, and then we incubated that with uh, cells, and then we uh, basically. Um, examined what was attached to it. And so the target we fished out was this protein called NAT10, that stands for N-acetyltransferase 10, mm -hmm. uh, that had not been associated with aging or HDPS before. Um, and so what was known about NAT10 was that uh, NAT10 is a protein that's able to modify proteins and RNA by acetylation. Mm -hmm. And from our work, we now know that remodeling basically prevents uh, NAT10 from acetylating its targets in, in cells. So it's still a bit unclear exactly how NAT10 uh, inhibition by remodeling can rescue all these phenotypes in, yeah. in HDPS. But what we know is that, um, at least in part, uh, NAT10 inhibition seems to work by releasing some of the the forces exerted on the nucleus by uh, cytoskeletal filaments right. uh, that appear to, to be stronger in progeria and to contribute to these uh, nuclear shape defects and, and DNA organization inside the nucleus. So, right. so by releasing some of these forces, we, we can basically improve some of the phenotypes. But we are still working on yeah. trying to understand the, the complete mechanism. Mm -hmm. And so do you think NAT10 is a good, is a potential target for um, HGPS treatment? Do you have any sort of data on this at the moment which suggests it might be um, a potential target? Yeah, so, so I think the results are really exciting because there are very few drugs available uh, for HGPS and the drugs available mainly act by 
um, improving the symptoms slightly, right? Uh, yeah. But they don't really extend the lifespan of the of the kids. Mm -hmm. And so I think what's exciting about our remodeling compound is that it's it basically works in a different way to the available compound. And in addition to improving most of the cellular defects, similarly to some of the compounds available to treat the kids, uh, our compound is the first one that can also rescue the high levels of DNA damage that's present in these kids. And as I mentioned before, it's believed that this accumulation of DNA damage contributes to aging uh, over time. And so uh, we, we also have uh, recently published data that we obtained in vivo using uh, mouse models for progeria. Uh, and I, I think that that's also a very exciting um, data because what we did is we, we took two complementary approaches in these uh, mouse models of progeria. One approach was to treat the mice with our compound remodeling. And the other one was to um, use some genetic tools to deplete NOT10 uh, in the progeria mice. And in both cases, we had a great uh, improvement of health of these mice, global mm -hmm. health, and also an increase of the lifespan by about 25%. Right. So I think altogether, this is very encouraging uh, data, and, and this does suggest that NOT10 would be a good target to, to explore um, new therapeutic uh, mm -hmm. avenues in, in progeria. I'm guessing when you're working on a disease which is so rare does that make sort of clinical trials particularly difficult so yes and no okay uh, yes because you have less patients available and so obviously uh, it's really hard to get good numbers uh, and it's really hard to get a, a placebo group versus a treated group yeah, of course. Uh, but on the other hand because the population is so small uh, it can also make everything ha happening faster mm -hmm. uh, and at least the you know population of progeria patients has been identified yeah. uh, and so so yeah it, so there are some you know yeah that's interesting of, yeah, yeah yeah i i guess you've you've touched on this a little bit but so obviously you're working on a disease in which aging occurs mm -hmm. ab abnormally early and abnormally fast um but do you think that is there any evidence that NATEN may be involved in uh, normal aging as well? I guess what I'm getting at is, is, is targeting NATEN also a possible way to increase longevity in otherwise, you know, uh, quote unquote healthy yes. individuals? Yeah. yeah, so this is something that we um, worked on a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and we do indeed have some data supporting the hypothesis that uh, inhibiting NAT10 in during normal aging uh, ca could also improve some of the, the aging yeah. phenotypes. Uh, so we basically carried out a couple of experiments using cells from normal aging individuals, mm -hmm. um, and we could see some alleviation of the, the, the aging phenotypes in the cells, but we haven't carried out any in vivo work to be able to say whether that would improve yeah. uh, longevity mm -hmm. or or health uh, yeah. in, in normal aging. Right, yeah. interesting. Um, so what would you say is kind of next for your research? Where, where do you want to go? Are you interested in other nuclear envelope disorders as well? I believe there's some sort yes. of muscular dystrophies as well. Which yes, exists. exactly. Is that something that you're interested in looking at or are you more into the 
aging side of things. So, so at the moment, we have two main uh, research focus in the lab. So one is to really try to understand the mechanism by which natal inhibition yeah. will alleviate these cellular phenotypes. Because, uh, as I mentioned, we do have some clues as to how this might occur, course, yeah. but, but we are still you know, looking into that. Uh, and the other direction uh, of research is uh, focused on yeah, other premature aging syndromes that are caused by mutations in different genes, but that also trigger um, premature aging to, to various extents. And so our goal is to be able to identify, again, some new targets uh, in these other premature aging syndromes uh, that could, um, first of all, prevent or, or rescue the, the cellular defects and potentially uh, go further into, into in vivo models to, to try and improve the, mm -hmm. the phenotypes. Exciting. Okay, um, uh, maybe a last question for you. This is it's actually something I asked um, Mary Ook, who's at the yeah. Gurdon Institute, I believe as well. Yeah. Um, I, I know a lot of people around me in science, you know, who either PhD students or postdocs, for example, uh, who, you know, they really enjoy what they're doing and they like kind of doing lab work and so on. But they, they don't know whether they would like to be a group leader, because mm -hmm. obviously it's a very different type of work to some extent, right? Um, and it's even harder to know if, you know, you'd be any any good at it in any, in yeah. any way. Um, so I was wondering how, you know, as a kind of young group leader who's currently making this transition, you know, how you navigate this change from mostly just doing your own bench work to being in charge of a whole group of people who are working with you. Yes, so I think you're never really prepared for the transition. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the pressure is different because yeah, as a postdoc, uh, you know, you're just responsible for your own work and your mm -hmm. own career. Uh, and as a group leader, obviously, you're also responsible for other people's career. Mm -hmm. So I think that's definitely puts this kind of additional pressure I can imagine. <laughs> on yourself. Um, but, you know, I think as you know, you cannot learn to swim by reading about it. I think yeah. you, you, you cannot know whether you would enjoy or, or be good at being a group leader um, before you actually do it. And I, th I think for me, it was it was it was really that like I, I, I can't say that I really felt ready for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think once you just once you in it, yeah. take the the, <laughs> the jump and make the jump and 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 start doing it, uh, I actually very much enjoy it uh, mm -hmm. at the moment. I think probably the most difficult uh, thing for me was to yeah, switch from being a very productive postdoc, um, spending most of my my time at the bench, from um, you know spending several months in front of the computer just buying uh, stuff for the lab and <laughs> and you know buying equipment and then doing a lot of uh, admin tasks and, and things course, like yeah. that uh, but once i had my, my first postdoc and my first phd student and the science was up and running again uh, you know that, that that was as exciting as when i was uh, a postdoc uh, so so i think the main difference is that yeah obviously now i i spend very little time myself uh, being at the bench which i do miss sometimes mm -hmm. Um, but I very much enjoy, you know, doing the science that we are doing and then seeing also how people develop uh, over time and, yeah. um, you know, get used to, to their, to their yeah. project and mm -hmm. things like yeah. that. So I guess, yeah, there's more to doing science than just pipetting from, <laughs> from one tube to the exactly. next. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, well, 
very much. <laughs>spheres of the earth you know so you've got uh you know you've got the lithosphere which is rocks mm -hmm. you've got the atmosphere that we all know and love you've got <laughs> uh, the hydrosphere uh which is to do with water but you also have things you know people make up all sorts of words like the biosphere for life the anthroposphere for humans and it's you know so all these different articles about um spheres of the earth and uh, how science considers them cool well, that sounds really cool there also is actually the program for this year's Cambridge Science Festival, if you're in Cambridge, uh, which came out quite recently. There are loads of really cool talks on there. Um, and I think the tickets might already be on sale, so definitely worth uh, checking that out as well. Awesome. Um, as always, our contact details. Uh, we've got bluesidepod at gmail.com for any contact or submissions. Bluesidepodcast. <laughs> Bluesidepodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. Thank you, Emma. <laughs> And uh, we're BlueSidePod on Twitter, though, yeah. at BlueSidePod. I should also mention, we've recently started an Instagram page for BlueSide for all of the arts that we, well, that loads of really great artists do for us in our magazines. Um, so we're hoping to advertise some of that on, on there. So it's BlueSide Art. All right, see you later. Bye. -bye.